Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. O Lord, our God, you are the faithful God, the God of the covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Elijah, and the God who answers by fire, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Father from whom all the family of heaven and earth is named. We pray that you would show us your glory here in this lesson as we study your covenant as you revealed it to Adam in the garden. We give thanks that though he broke the covenant of works, we have a Savior who has faithfully kept the covenant of redemption, fulfilling your law perfectly in penalty and precept, and has bestowed upon us everlasting life through the covenant of grace. Please guide us. May we draw near to you as those who understand the secret of the Lord and who are in a close friendship with the Lord that you might reveal to us the things of your covenant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue our series on the federal vision, I think it's important to note very briefly that we'll be finishing up this series in the not-too-distant future. So right now we're just seeking to tie up some loose ends. With God's help, this afternoon we're going to be looking at the covenant of works. And this is a topic that someone from another state who had contacted me about this uh, series of lectures had encouraged me and asked me, really, uh, when are we going to get to the covenant of works? And so I had planned on doing it. We didn't end up getting to it in the previous lectures, so I wanted to make sure that we address this very, very relevant subject as it relates to the errors of the federal vision. And in addition to that, very likely we'll be considering some of the highly questionable literature that Canon Press has been publishing on the doctrine of the Trinity. So we want to definitely hit that point. There's some arguably some Trinitarian heresy that uh, Doug Wilson's publisher has been promoting and, and even as it manifests itself to an extent in some of the ambiguous language of the 2007 Federal Vision Joint Statement. So we're going to be looking at the Covenant of Works. Uh, before we conclude the series, we will be spending a bit of time on the doctrine of the Trinity and perhaps a final lecture just bringing it all together. So that's the outlook from here on out. Now, the covenant of works. You have a handout in front of you, and I'd like to begin by reading a quotation from Wilhelmus Abrockel. Uh, you can see the title of the lecture is Federal Vision, the Covenant of Works. The first quotation is from Wilhelmus Abrockel, and obviously he's not an adherent of the Federal Vision, but he is the first quotation that we're listing here because Really, he's one of the greatest classical reform theologians of all time, and his four-volume work, The Christian's Reasonable Service, is highly beneficial from a doctrinal and a practical experiential standpoint. Few systematic theologies exceed Brockle in his knowledge and in his piety. And so he's a helpful reference point for us as we try to get a uh, get our minds around the significance and the centrality of the doctrine of the covenant of works in Reformed and biblical theology. 
Brockle says this, quote, Acquaintance with this covenant is of the greatest importance for whoever errs here or denies the existence of the covenant of works will not understand the covenant of grace and will readily err concerning the mediatorship of the Lord Jesus. Such a person will very readily deny that Christ by his active obedience has merited a right to eternal life for the elect. This is to be observed with several parties who, because they err concerning the covenant of grace, also deny the covenant of works. Conversely, whoever denies the covenant of works must rightly be suspected to be an error concerning the covenant of grace as well. End quote. So you can see here that Brockle is very much in tune with the interconnectedness of these various doctrinal subjects. And really this is what systematic theology is all about, the interrelationship between various biblical truths. If you deny this truth over here, it affects that truth over there. There's a domino effect. There's a cause and effect relationship. And he is really getting under the surface here to show us how an erroneous view of the covenant of works or even an outright denial of the covenant of works leads to an erroneous view of the covenant of grace. And he even says that people who have an erroneous view of the covenant of grace will then seek to defend their position by corrupting or denying the doctrine of the covenant of works. And sad to say, this is largely what we find among the adherents of the federal vision. We've seen their erroneous view of justification and of God's covenant in various respects, the covenant of grace. And uh, as Brockle points out, this is going to tempt them to misconstrue or even deny the doctrine of the covenant of works. Now, uh, the covenant of works is central to biblical covenant theology, and it's central to the covenant theology that's set forth in the Westminster Standards. You can read about it in a number of places in our catechisms, uh, Shorter Catechism 15, Larger Catechism 20, 22, 26, 30 through 32, 36, and 92 are all relevant to the doctrine of the covenant of works. This doctrine essentially says that when God placed Adam in the garden, he entered into a covenant of life with him. So like the covenant of grace, the covenant of works is a covenant of life because the benefit or reward for keeping the covenant is eternal life. So it's a covenant of life, but it's a covenant of works in the sense that the condition or the prerequisite that needs to be met in order to obtain that reward according to the covenant promise, the condition, if you will, is that of works. So the covenant of grace is a covenant of life which is obtained by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. So it's a covenant of life and a covenant of grace. But the covenant of works is a covenant of life which is obtained by the condition of works. And when we say works, uh, we don't mean bare works, uh, works, fleshly works, carnal works, dead works. What we mean is full-fledged spiritual works. From the heart, Adam was required to obey God's law perfectly, and he was equipped to do that from the heart. You could even say by faith. By faith, all of the Old Testament saints did what they did 
in honor of God, Hebrews 11. And so Adam was called by faith to, to exercise faith that works itself out in love. In other words, faith that produces good works. And it was his faithfulness, his faith-based faithfulness, that was the condition of the covenant of works. Now, that's not the same thing. It's very important to make a distinction between the requirement that was placed on Adam, where, number one, he has the law of God written on his heart, so he has to keep, in principle, all ten commandments, because it's written on his heart, Romans chapter 2, verse 14. But also, uh, he's given a special commandment, even as Jesus, as the second Adam, was given a special commandment to be obedient unto the cross, okay? Adam was given a special commandment, also dealing with a tree, to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he, he had the basic responsibilities of the Ten Commandments written on his heart, and uh, the soul who sins shall die. So it's implied in the creator-creature relationship that if he in any way, in thought, word, and deed, breaks any of the Ten Commandments in substance that he would be subject to God's wrath. But God gives him a special command. Over and above the naturally existing relationship between a creator and a reasonable creature, God adds this covenant of life by way of faithfulness or works. God says he, he forbids Adam from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. In the day that you eat it, dying you shall die. So you'll, you'll begin to die physically, and eventually you will die spiritually and eternally, the second death in hell itself. But, as we'll see in a moment, we're not going to go through all the proof text right now, but the doctrine of the covenant of works says that God offered Adam eternal life upon the condition of perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. So if he obeys God's law and God's commandments, both the natural law in his heart and the special law concerning the tree, if he obeys that and passes the test of Satan's temptation in this probationary period, this limited period of testing, then he will be justified. He will have right and title to eternal life according to the promise of God. Now, this is the doctrine. You can read it in the larger catechism. You can read it in the confession of faith. You can read it in Brockle, Turretin, uh, Hodge, pretty much everybody who, who's anybody in the Reformed faith. Now, it's important to recognize that even though we hold that the covenant of works required faithful obedience as the condition to obtain eternal life, we need some qualifiers here. We are not saying that Adam's faithful obedience during that limited probationary period, strictly speaking, merited eternal life. There is no proportion between a temporary uh, season of obedience and an eternal reward. So the covenant of life by works was in one sense gracious. Some people don't like to mix those two, but, but God did not have to enter into this covenant by which Adam could be faithfully obedient for a season and obtain an eternal, unlosable righteousness and reward. 
He didn't have to do that. He could have left Adam in the natural creature-creature relationship where if Adam sins, he dies, and he's ever in suspense. He could wake up the next morning, sin, and die. His children could wake up the next morning, sin, and die, all down through the ages. Instead, God placed all mankind descending from Adam by ordinary generation covenantally, federally, representatively in Adam so that he represented that whole human constituency aside from Christ. And if he obeys during the probationary limited period, he obtains eternal life. That's a gracious offer because the eternal death, which was the punishment, would have been there even apart from a covenant of works. The soul who sins shall die. That's a natural necessity. But God offers eternal, unlosable life for the whole human race if Adam simply sinks a two-inch putt in the Garden of Eden and obeys for a, sustain, you know, a, a temporary period of time. It's a bunny. It's a, it's a breakaway layup. It was easy in one sense. God made him in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness and gave him a perfect wife, a perfect life, and he tested him for that period of time. And Adam failed as the representative of mankind. And so rather than having righteousness and eternal reward reckoned to his posterity, instead what you have is sin, guilt and sinfulness, which extend to his ordinary posterity. The imputation of Adam's sin to all his descendants, aside from Christ, and uh, the infusion of, his, of sinful nature, spiritual death in transgression and sin, which passes to all mankind by natural generation. This is the doctrine of the covenant of works. It really sets forth a contrast between the righteousness of the law, which of course, again, is not a bare legalistic dead righteousness or obedience or work, but uh, the righteousness of the law is an act of love through faith and trust and love for God. Okay, that's what the Ten Commandments require, heartfelt, loving obedience. So the, the covenant of works requires heartfelt, loving obedience as a manifestation of faith in God for Adam to obtain eternal life for his posterity. And the covenant of grace pours out eternal life upon those who are united to the second Adam who not only succeeded where Adam failed by perfectly obeying the law unto death on the cross, but who also dealt with Adam's sin and the sinfulness of God's people by dying and suffering for their sins. So there's a twofold righteousness of Christ, active and passive, or we could say preceptive and penal, and Christ as the second Adam succeeds where Adam failed and even mops up the, you know, cleans up the problems that Adam created and saves his spiritual seed and gives them eternal life. So you have the covenant of works, the condition of which is works unto eternal life, and the covenant of grace, which is by grace unto eternal life. That's the doctrine. Now notice the Federal Vision Joint Statement. We affirm that Adam was in a covenant of life with the triune God in the Garden of Eden. Let's stop there. So they're trying to use confessional language here, but as we're going to see, they change the meaning. We continue. In which arrangement Adam was required to obey God completely from the heart? 
We hold further that all such obedience, had it occurred, would have been rendered from a heart of faith alone in a spirit of loving trust. Now we're going to stop there. We would agree with that as confessional Reformed Christians. We would agree with everything that's been said here. Okay? They may not think we would agree, but we do believe the righteousness of the law requires heartfelt, faith-based obedience. That's what works are, right? Is it really a good work if you don't do it out of love and as a fruit of your faith and trust in God? So you can see here that they're, they're setting this forth, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to uh, use the word faith even the phrase faith alone, and they're using it in, in the sense in which faith alone factors into what we would call sanctified good works, right? And they're trying to then say that it's the same as what takes place in justification. And, and I'm just, that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to keep reading here, and I think it'll become clear. They go on, Adam was created to progress from immature glory to mature glory, but that glorification too would have been a gift of grace received by faith alone, end quote. I'm going to stop there. Okay. See how they're invoking the phrase faith alone in reference to Adam's loving good works as a prerequisite for eternal life in the covenant of works. What they're saying here is, you see, Adam puts forth good works that are a fruit of faith. Therefore, it's by faith alone. They're equating the good works that proceed from faith with the phrase faith alone. And this is what Brockle was warning about. Those who in the covenant of grace want to say that we're justified by faith or faith alone in the sense that we do good works by faith and we perform loving obedience by faith alone, and that's the basis of our justification, okay? Those people, says Brockle, are going to go back to the covenant of works, and they're going to say, you see, uh, the covenant of works was by faith alone, in this sort of way that by faith Adam obeyed the commandments as a basis for eternal life. As you can see at the end of my first page of the handout, what they're trying to say is, Both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace confer eternal life upon all who, by grace and flowing from a heart of loving trust, persevere in performing the required obedience. In other words, they, by turning the covenant of works into a covenant of grace and redefining grace as works, they turn the covenant of grace into a covenant of works. Let me say that again by turning the covenant of works into a covenant of grace and redefining grace as it relates to works, they turn the covenant of grace into a covenant of works. And so now they train their people when they think of faith alone, they're thinking, oh yeah, Adam in the garden. He has to obey as an act of faith and faith alone. And so when I'm justified by Christ... Uh, What does that involve? Oh, it involves me by faith alone doing good works and contributing to my justification. This is what Brockle's warning of, and this is what the federal vision is very subtly promoting. They, they, They love inserting phrases like faith alone 
in context where we're talking about someone's personal obedience, not the vicarious obedience of Christ received by faith alone. Is Adam receiving righteousness by faith alone if he's faithfully performing the commandments himself? Is that the same thing? No, it's not. This is why we have the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Both involve faith, both involve grace, just like justification is gracious and sanctification is gracious, but these are two different things. In justification, we receive Christ's righteousness by faith alone. In sanctification, we by the Spirit's power produce good works by faith that works through love. These are two different things. In the covenant of works, Adam, out of a heart of faith and love, had to perform obedience to obtain eternal life. In the covenant of grace, we receive Christ's obedience by faith and are righteous unto eternal life. These things are not the same, but there's an attempt to blur the lines between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace in the same way that they try to blur the lines between justification and sanctification. We're familiar with Roman Catholicism. What is their doctrine of justification? It is essentially that you're justified by your sanctification. Your right standing with God at the last day is partly grounded in your faith-based good works. Blurring the lines. Continue the quote here. We deny that continuance in this covenant in the garden was in any way a payment for work rendered. Adam could forfeit or demerit the gift of glorification by disobedience, but the gift or continued possession of that gift was not offered by God to Adam, conditioned upon Adam's moral exertions or achievements. In line with this, we affirm that until the expulsion from the garden, Adam was free to eat from the tree of life. We deny that Adam had to earn or merit righteousness, life, glorification, or anything else, end quote. It all seems so nice, but think about it. They're saying fundamentally the covenant of works with Adam and the covenant of grace in Christ are the same. They're the same. If the covenant God made with Adam is by grace through faith in the same fundamental sense that the covenant of grace is, then think about the implications. They say Adam could forfeit or demerit the gift of glorification by disobedience. Well, wait a second. If God's dealings with Adam are on par and analogous with his dealings with us through the covenant of grace in Christ, then you can see where the federal vision is going with this because many of them teach that, yes, those in covenant with God, those who are truly justified or saved, can in fact forfeit or demerit the gift of glorification. You can lose your salvation. So they're saying, look, God was so gracious with Adam and he's gracious in the same way with us. But oh, by the way, Adam could lose his glorification. Ergo, so can any believer in the New Testament. You can forfeit or demerit the gift of glorification by disobedience. And they say, well, but it's not a condition. Well, think about this. If you can forfeit the reward by disobedience, how is not the obedience the condition? Right? I mean, it's just basic logic that continually we've seen the federal visionists refuse to employ. Uh, if you can lose the reward by your disobedience, it stands to reason that your obedience is the condition to enjoying that reward. 
So they engage in all of these ambiguities to blur the lines and set the stage for a view of the covenant of grace where, oh, it's all of grace, but you can sin away your salvation. It's all of grace, just like with Adam. Yeah, but he was cast out of the garden and most of his descendants went to hell. So that's the Federal Vision's joint statement. Let's consider a quote from Rich Lusk. Quote, but was this prelapsarian or pre-fall covenant with Adam a covenant of grace or merit? Was it conditioned on faith or obedience? Was it abrogated with Adam's sin or perpetuated in a new form? End quote. Now it's clear in context, this is from his essay in the Auburn Avenue Theology Colloquium Address, page 121 in that pink paperback volume. And by the way, these are the lectures or the papers that Doug Wilson said are in the middle of the mainstream of Reformed Orthodoxy. Now, it's clear in the context that Lusk is saying that that covenant with Adam was a covenant of grace and that it was conditioned on faith, not obedience, because he redefines faith as obedience, as we've seen already. And he believes it was not abrogated with Adam's sin, but that the covenant of grace really is the perpetuation of the covenant of works in a new form. Now, a couple things to say here. First of all, strictly speaking, as we've said, Adam's temporary obedience in that season of testing doesn't strictly merit eternal life. So we're not actually saying that Adam fully merits eternal life in the same sense that Christ's infinitely valuable obedience and death merit the blessings of eternal life, right? Christ in a period of temporary testing can merit that which is infinite. Adam cannot. He doesn't merit it in that strict sense. We can say he earns it according to the gracious promise that God gives him that if he does the work that he'll receive the reward. So these guys are constantly trying to misrepresent the doctrine of the covenant of works. We're not saying it's strict merit in the same sense that Christ merited eternal life. But there is, as it were, a covenantal merit. There's a sense in which Adam does the work that God promised to reward, and so he would receive the reward. Now, the other thing that we need to say is that some theologians have suggested that when Christ fulfilled the covenant of redemption with his Father, the agreement of salvation from before the foundation of the world, where the Father gives the elect to the Son, and the Son vows from all eternity to die for their sins and be raised for their justification and to perform good works. And all of the finished work of Christ, he promises that, he accomplishes that in history, okay? Some have suggested that that is the fulfillment of the covenant of works. And that's a reasonable statement, right? You can see, I think there's even something in our Reformed Presbyterian testimony to that effect, that the covenant of redemption wherein Christ vows to save the elect and then through the covenant of grace as he saves them and redeems them, that these things fulfill the covenant of works. That's reasonable. So in one sense, the covenant of works was perpetuated in a new form with the second Adam fulfilling it. Okay, fair enough. But what Lusk is saying 
is not that the covenant of redemption wherein the Son takes the load on His back and redeems His people, but He's saying the covenant of grace wherein we are the people of God through Christ in the covenant of grace and salvation that we have with God through Christ, the second Adam, that that is the perpetuation of the covenant of works with Adam. Now, he wouldn't call it a covenant of works, but he's saying the Adamic covenant continues in the covenant of grace today. In that sense, we fulfill that role of Adam in offering up faithfulness or faith-based obedience and receiving eternal life. This is very dangerous. Lusk again, quote, if evidence for the graciousness of the original Adamic covenant or administration is found in moving back of creation to the Trinitarian covenant, further evidence is found by analogy with later covenants in Scripture. Every subsequent covenant head, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and so on, is presented as a new Adam. But if Adam serves as the paradigm for these later covenant heads, and Adam was in a covenant of works, then these later men must have been as well. Of course, that is utter nonsense. But the Noahic covenant was clearly a covenant of grace based on sacrifice. If Noah is a new Adam, which is obviously the case, the original Adamic covenant likely had an element of grace as well. The basic configuration of the covenant, understood as a bond of love, communion, and friendship with both privileges and obligations, was already in place. Each covenant renewal maintains this fundamental structure, end quote. So he assumes that Noah and Abraham and so on and so forth, Moses and David, that these are all new atoms, when in fact, the Bible never teaches that. Of course, there are going to be analogies between Adam's situation. I mean, every time you're tempted by the devil, you can put yourself in Adam's shoes, although he was probably barefoot, but you can put yourself in Adam's situation. You can put yourself in Eve's situation. I mean, in a sense, we're all Adam's. The word for mankind in the Old Testament is Adam. That There's a sense in which Adam was a, some would say anyway, prophet, priest, and king of his family. And, you know, again people would say the same of heads of household today. So there are these kinds of analogies, but to say that it's obviously the case that Noah is the new Adam and that Abraham, Moses, David, and so on are the new Adams is a stretch. It's a stretch. The Bible says that Adam was the t- a type of the one who was to come, Romans 5, even Christ. He's the last Adam. Now, that doesn't mean there's the first Adam and then the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, and then Jesus comes as the eleventh and last Adam. No. Again, Rich Lusk is is smoking the James Jordan hermeneutical peyote here that clearly Adam is followed by all these second, third, fourth, fifth Adams and so on, but that's not the case. There are fundamentally two Adams. Our confession and catechisms teach that Christ is the second Adam. And Paul says he's the last Adam and that Adam was a type not of a bunch of guys who, who were to come, but the one who was to come. So you can see the flaw here in Lusk's exegetical argument. But he's saying that the covenant of grace is a continuation of the Adamic covenant. Big problem. Big problem. Uh, because the Adamic covenant failed, friends. It failed. 
And the, the glory of the new covenant is that all those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of Christ's constituency or covenantal seed make it to heaven and are never cast out, as it were, of paradise. Again, Lusk, Israel, like Adam, receives life from God and then is commanded to obey on the basis of this grace, and he cites Exodus, 12, uh, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, end quote. So God commanding his people Israel, let's just think in terms of their sanctification here for a moment. Part of the purpose of the Ten Commandments was for Moses and Aaron and believers among the Israelites, though they were a small fraction, for their sanctification. Is that the same as God's covenant with Adam? That uh, God gives eternal life and then says, uh, you have eternal life, now do this. Uh, is, is that what God does with Adam? No. God says, do this and live. It's contingent on his obedience. If he's disobedient, even the Federal Vision Joint Statement admits that he could demerit his own glorification. So, the element of sanctification at Mount Sinai for Israel as God's people is not analogous to the covenant God made with Adam. Now, again, the end result is this, that both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, according to this view, confer eternal life upon all who, by God's grace and flowing from a heart of loving trust, persevere in performing the required obedience. Now, if you compromise the gospel of God's grace through faith in Christ, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, into a covenant of works, then you can see the draw. You can see the desire that you would have if you're looking for a way to explain God's covenant of grace with his people, what aspect of God's dealings with man would you make a beeline to? Which, which one would you want to make the paradigm for understanding God's covenant of grace? It would be God's dealings with Adam because that was on the basis of works. So these guys are seeking to corrupt the gospel of free justification and salvation by grace. And so they say the paradigm for the gospel is God's dealings with Adam. Obey or you lose it. If you look at Lusk's articles, you see another paradigm that he likes to cite is Jesus' dealings with the rich young ruler. Uh, we'll deal with those, God willing, next time, or at least we'll, we'll, we have a lot to say about this next time on this subject. But if you look at the Roman Catholic Catechism, its paradigm for true faith and repentance of a believer, we could say in the covenant of grace, is what Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, verse 16 and following. The same view as the Roman Catholics take is taken by Rich Lusk and the Federal Visionists when they say that Jesus is not presenting the perfect, unattainable standard of God's law as a covenant of works to turn the rich young ruler away from his self-righteousness under the righteousness of Christ. They say he's not doing that. He's not using the first use of the law for biblical evangelism uh, you know, essentially like Ray Comfort, are you a good person? Oh, wait, you're not. You need to be saved. He's not doing that. No. Uh, he's telling the rich young ruler, actually, uh, keep the law and you'll have eternal life. 
do this and live. Produce this faithful, covenantal obedience and you'll have eternal life. Matthew 19, verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So according to the Roman Catholics and according to the Federal Visionists, Jesus is preaching the gospel here. You need to believe and by faith bring forth obedience to God's commandments. That's how you gain eternal life. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said. Again, Jesus isn't trying to um, turn the tables on this guy, no pun intended, by citing the Ten Commandments. But he's actually telling him, here's how you can obey and have eternal life. By grace, through a heart of loving obedience, right? Just like the federal vision says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things have I kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So we don't doubt that there is a call to faith and repentance involved in this, but part of the call to faith is a call to reckon with the perfect standard of God's law that disqualifies you from self-righteousness so that you believe on God, right? No one is good but God. And no one is good in the sense that we need, but the God-man mediator, Jesus Christ, who has kept these things on our behalf. And yes, as a response to that, excuse me, as a response to that, he needs to sell all of his belongings and follow Christ, no question. But this presentation of the law of God is the first use of the law to shut down his own self-righteousness and point him to Christ. That's the purpose. But Federal Vision says, no, in fact, The rich young ruler is simply receiving a call to covenantal faithfulness and that that should be our evangelistic technique. You know, so you think if Ray Ray Comfort, God forbid, became a federal visionist, you know, are you a good person? No. Well, you know, here's a book by Doug Wilson. Here's how you can find out, you know, here's, here's Rich Lusk's sermon audio page or whatever. You know, here's how you can figure out how to do enough to, to gain eternal life. No. We, know the non- we can see the nonsense of that right off the bat. Now, what I want us to do here is just take a note here that next time we're going to be considering the scriptural evidence for the covenant of works. So this has been an introduct- introductory lecture where we've been looking in general at the doctrine of the covenant of works, the federal vision joint statement on God's covenant with Adam, We've looked at some of these quotations from Rich Lusk, and we've been evaluating that, contrasting these things, and looking at the theological implications. But I do understand that we need to prove the doctrine of the covenant of works from Scripture, and you can see there we have four theological propositions that we're going to demonstrate. Some of them have subpoints. Uh, I'm just going to read over this real quick and then take questions. We're not going to delve into it just yet. We'll do that, Lord willing, next time. But the first proposition 
is that Scripture repeatedly references a divine promise of eternal life to mankind on the condition of perfect obedience to God's law. We're going to look at passages where unmistakably the Scriptures refer to a divine promise of eternal life to mankind on the condition of perfect obedience to God's law. We're going to see that. Second proposition, God established this promise with mankind either before the fall or afterward. Now that proposition is simply a matter of common sense logic. It's one or the other. God established this promise with mankind either before the fall or afterward. And then the sub-point there, God did not establish this promise after the fall since mankind was already guilty in Adam and thereby disqualified from offering perfect obedience to his commandments. So this promise of eternal life on the condition of perfect obedience to the law, it would have happened before or after the fall. It couldn't have been after the fall because mankind was already disqualified from rendering that obedience. They were already guilty in Adam and in themselves. Subpoint B, therefore God must have established this promise before the fall. Irrefutable logic. So there must have been a promise before the fall from God to mankind that he would give them eternal life on the condition of perfect obedience. Third proposition, there is evidence of this promise of eternal life in God's providential dealings with Adam before the fall. Subpoint A, God placed Adam in paradise which Scripture identifies as a type of heaven. Scripture refers to heaven as paradise. God placed Adam in something of a paradise, pointing ahead to heavenly, eternal life. Subpoint B, God instituted the weekly Sabbath, which Scripture identifies as a type of everlasting heavenly rest. So the Sabbath points to heaven. What place would that have had? in the covenant with Adam if he was not offered heavenly rest. In addition, God planted the tree of life, which Scripture identifies as a symbol of the everlasting, unlosable heavenly life secured for believers by Christ. So we're going to look at passages where the tree of life is symbolic, whether Adam and Eve ate of it, at what point, we're not going to debate that. But we know this, that the tree of life is used in the New Testament as symbolic of everlasting, unlosable heavenly life. So if Adam could not have attained that, what purpose would it be to put the tree of life there to signify that? And if the tree of life signifies something you can lose, then why would the Bible use it and employ it consistently in the book of Revelation to refer to what we inherit in heaven? Okay. Also, God instituted marriage, joining Adam to his wife as one flesh, thereby signifying eternal heavenly communion between God and man as ultimately to be enjoyed by Christ and the church. So there's something of God and man in a covenantal relationship, in a heavenly communion that is signified by the institution of marriage. Now we know that through the second Adam, we come to enjoy that heavenly communion. But in terms of the covenant of works, it did offer heavenly communion, And marriage pointed to that. Also, Adam is called the Son of God, Luke 3.38, indicating that humanity's chief end was not to be suspended indefinitely upon its own obedience, but to, quote, abide in the house forever, end quote, since, 
quote, a son abides forever, end quote, John 8, 35. Sonship is perpetual. Sonship is perpetual, or at least is intended to be that. It's not sonship if you're constantly looking over your shoulder, worried about falling away and being kicked out of the house, okay? So for Adam, obviously there was a time of testing where he had to obtain the fullness of sonship. There was a time of testing where he had to obtain this unlosable eternal life. But to say that God created him perpetually in this state of always being able to lose what he had is inconsistent with the biblical notion of sonship. Surely he was created to pass the test and gain unlosable fellowship as a son who abides forever. Fourth major proposition There is confirmation of this teaching in other parts of Scripture. So you've got Hosea 6, 4 through 7. We'll look at that. Romans 5, 12 through 21, which speaks of Adam as a type of him who was to come. And thirdly, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul presents Christ as the last Adam. And again, you can look at the confessional references that are relevant for this discussion, which are printed on your handout at the bottom of the second page there. So that's just an overview. We're going to look at this more in depth with one additional lecture on the covenant of works. Then with God's help, we'll be considering some of the Trinitarian problems within the federal vision community. And then after that consideration, we'll perhaps have some closing comments summing everything up. Does anyone have any questions about what we've said today? All right, let's pray. All-glorious God, it is our great delight and our chief end to dwell with you in that house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. We see your grace, your mercy, your justice, and your severity in your dealings with Adam in covenant in the garden we see that you are faithful and that where sin is committed, you bring judgment. And yet where sin has abounded, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, grace has abounded all the more. We pray that you would help us to see clearly the great distinction and contrast between your covenant with Adam and your covenant with us through the Lord Jesus Christ that we would see that it is finished and that Christ the second Adam has fulfilled the terms, the conditions, the responsibilities of the covenant and has given us eternal life, even given us your spirit by whose power we believe on Christ and are united to him, by whose strength we're sanctified and led in righteous paths for your own namesake and by whose ministry we are kept by faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.